Genesis 31. So, uh, on Sunday after church, in the evening, no, late afternoon, my wife, myself, Elijah, my 10-year-old, Myron, my four-year-old son, and then our two foster kids, Hunter, who's three, and Harrison, Harry, Esau, who's two months old, we went over to Medford to Elijah's soccer game. So my wife is sitting, talking to a friend, and she's in charge of Harry, the two-month-old. And I have Myron, my four-year-old, and Hunter, our three-year-old. And I'm kind of in between. There's two fields. There's a game happening in front of me and a game behind me. And I'm trying to watch the game here because that's Elijah's game. And then I'm also keeping an eye on Myron and Hunter. So I got them, and things are going pretty well. And then Hunter shows up with this soccer ball. I'm like, hey, buddy, where'd you get that? It's my soccer ball. No, it's not your soccer ball because we didn't bring it. No, it's my soccer ball. So I'm kind of looking around like, well, I don't know who. You know, there's a bunch of people there. So I'm like, all right, keep watching the game. Well, three minutes later, over comes this sweet little girl. She's like, he has my soccer ball. So I'm like, Hunter, come here. Give her the soccer ball back. No. Buddy, it's not your soccer ball. Give her the soccer ball back. No, mine. I'm like, buddy, you've got to give the soccer. And the girl's so sweet. She's like, do you want to just play? Yeah, I want to play. So then she like takes, I'm like, oh, good. Distraction, that's really working. So they go off and they're playing soccer. And so I'm watching them for a few minutes and then try to watch Elijah for a second. And then I hear this like four minutes later, I hear this screaming. I'm like, oh no. I look over there. He's now stopped playing soccer and he's laying on another like three-year-old kid's blanket that was laid out for him, but he's now rolling himself up like a taco in the other three-year-old's blanket. And the other three-year-old's trying to get the blanket from Hunter and he won't let him. He just keeps rolling in it and get, taking more and more of the blanket. So I stand up very quickly and kind of run over there. By the time I get there, the mom's now up and she's like, hey, little boy, can you share my son's blanket with him? can you please do that? And he's just like, no, no. He just keeps rolling. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, buddy, you, you can't do this. So I just kind of grab it and I unroll him. Shink, you're unrolled. And then I give the blanket back. And he gets up. He's like, just throws his fit. I'm like, no, no. I'm like, Hunter, we need to go over here. No, I'm not going over there. I don't want to go over there. Just stamping his feet and like running. And so he, he, he stops for a second. And so now like there's probably 15 people on all, all sides that are like, this is better than the soccer game. What's happening back here? All right, so they're just looking at me. And I'm, so I, I kneel down to talk to Hunter. The moment I get on my knees, guess what he does? He runs away from me. So then I'm like standing up, all eyes are on me. I'm like, well. So then I'm kind of like trying to, Hunter, come here. And he starts running around this mom. So I'm running after him as he's running around this mom. And now there's probably 30 people on both sides looking at this whole thing because he's just, he's loud. I mean, he's just loud. And then uh, finally he quits running around. And I'm saying, uh, Hunter, come here. Hunter, come We're going over to Myron. So finally he peels off and runs over to where Myron's at. And then I'm stuck there looking. And I'll tell you, there was something I wanted to do so bad. Actually, the second thing I wanted to do so bad, I wanted to say to everybody, he's not mine. <laughs> he's a foster kid. He's, this is not my kid, right? I wanted, I had to bite my tongue not to say that because it was so like shameful. I'm like, Ugh. so I, I just walked away. So I sat down and I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of like still, I can feel like eyes on the back of my head. Like, oh, they're probably just boring into me right now. I was a terrible parent. And I thought, I wonder if God ever thinks that about me. He's not mine. <laughs> He's a foster kid. My son would never do this. Trust me. You may have heard of him. His name is Jesus. He doesn't act like Matt, right? <laughs> he doesn't do these things. As we read through Genesis, we're being introduced now to the family of God. And they act a lot like Hunter, don't they? Abraham. Oh, man. Isaac, ah, not a great dad. Plays favorites. Jacob, I mean, just the list expands. And you read these things, 
and you start kind of thinking, hmm, is God ashamed to call these people his family? Or maybe you feel that way. Man, God's ashamed for me to be part of his family. There's this great verse in Hebrews 2.11 that I thought of when I was going through this in my mind. And it says essentially this, that he that is sanctified and he that sanctifies are one. And because of that, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That God never looks at us. Jesus never looks at us and says, he's a foster kid. That's not how my kids act. He never does that. He never does it to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob. Never, 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 never. Do you know why? Because we are thrice royal people. We're thrice royal people. There are three ways that you could become royal. Number one, born into it. Number two, adopted into it. Number three, married into it. Guess what the New Testament uses for the three metaphors of how we have come into God's family? Born into it, John chapter three. Adopted into it, Romans eight, Galatians four. And then over and over, especially Revelation, we become the bride of Christ. We are thrice royal to God and he is never ashamed to call us his family. So hopefully, as we've read through Genesis and we see the incredible dysfunction of these people and these families, it should give you absolute hope because I doubt there's anyone in here that's as dysfunctional as these families. And if you are, hey, no problem. God still loved them, used them, took their crookedness and drew the straight line of of what he wanted to become a blessing to all nations. It's a brilliant book. It has given me more and more and more and more hope. So to catch you up in chapter 31, we covered a little bit of it last week. Here's what's happened. Jacob has become more powerful than Laban. So Laban's boys are mad. Laban's not happy. God comes to Jacob and says, okay, bud, time to get out of here. So Jacob then goes out into the field and he says this, it's verse seven. Your dad has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Now, which direction do you think Laban was changing the wage? It's been 20 years. Has he given him a raise every two years, which would be normal? No way. He's taken from him every two years. He's cutting his wage, taking more from him, edging him out. But then verse 12 says this. that God says, I have seen that all that Laban is doing to you. So God, like Leah, remember? She was the unattractive, overlooked daughter used as a leverage to get more out of Jacob by her own dad. And it says that God saw Leah and blessed her and gave her, which in, which in her culture was the number one thing, gave her just kid after kid after kid after kid, six boys she's gonna have and a daughter. Just blessed her that way. So you have God once again seeing what's happening, seeing the deck is stacked against Jacob and God himself begins to straighten out that deck. I love that. Because I think some of us can look at our lives and think the deck was stacked against me. The way I was raised, the education system I was in, my parents' opportunity, just bad things that happened in childhood. We had this rep come in from Grants Pass High, awesome guy, and actually a pastor from Medford as well. And they did this thing called ACEs. Have you heard of that? Adverse childhood experiences. And what that does to a kid when they have these things happen to them in childhood, it actually just kind of frames your brain a certain way that now you interpret everything through that trauma, right? It's like they grow up always with PTSD. And for a long time, I kind of was like, oh, come on. That's just give me, just grow up, just get over it. Until this thing has started happening to me, I've mentioned it before, but about six or seven years ago, I started having this nightmare 
And it happens once every six, nine months. And as I'm in the car with my older brother and we're ready to get into an automobile accident because that's how he died. That didn't happen to me. I got a phone call at 10.32 at night to tell me about it. And my brain is still trying to figure out that. And I just had it like, it was about eight months ago now. And this time it was my brain up at one level and I'm in the vehicle, I know what's happening. And my daughter, who is actually the right age, she's four years old, Carissa, she's in the car with me and I'm trying to grab her as I see this wall coming to me. And I just wake up, ah, ah. And I think about kids that have really gone through real traumatic things. Their brain's still trying to figure that stuff out. So we can think, man, the deck was stacked against me. Listen, I know God sees And he alone is the one that can straighten out the deck that's stacked against us, if we'll let him. Too often people hold on to these events and let this past thing define their present instead of saying, no, God, you see that. And I'm letting that go to you. And I'm looking forward to you in your way. And I'll allow you to deal with that stuff. That's what Jacob does, right? God saw, I'm letting him take take it. And what you see with Jacob here that I love as he consults his wives. He comes, talks with them, shares with them the whole situation. Like, here's what's going on, verse 14. And they answer him. He's not a bully. Jacob's not a bully just saying, hey, ladies, this is what we're doing. Pack your stuff, let's go. Some men are bullies. In premarital counseling, I always tell the guy this, don't you ever quote to your wife, woman, submit. The moment you have to quote that, you already lost. You are supposed to be creating an environment of mutual submission. You are submitted to your wife and she's submitted to you in such a way that you don't ever have to say stuff like that. If you ever have to say that, your thing is so broken, man, immediately seek help. It's broken. He does not do that. He comes, he talks, he shares what's going on. And then I love their response. They just say, now, verse 16, whatever God has said to you, do. He realizes we are covenant partners in this thing. I want you on my team. And Jacob now for 20 years has been working and living in such a way that he has won the allegiance of his wives to himself away from their dad, that they know he'll take care of us. He's on our side. He's awesome. And for the first time in verses one through 16, you see this jacked up family, Jerry Springer family, God-centered and united. It's awesome. For the first time, they're God-centered and they're united. They trust and obey God. That's what they do. And things get brilliant for them. But sadly, it is not going to last long. So let's jump in verse 17. So they say, do whatever God has said to you. He has said, get up, go home. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. I've said before, camels were the Ferraris of the ancient East. This means Jacob, he's a Bedouin billionaire. He's got bank. He puts his kids on the best that he has. Puts them on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone out to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Doesn't last long. I call this the great escape. He packs everything up, starts to leave. On the way out, Rachel grabs her dad's little idols and steals them and brings them with her. It's just, talk about complicating the matter. This thing is actually gonna follow them for about 15 years. This one dumb, stupid, sabotaging act is gonna 
pollute them all the way into chapter 35. It's a bummer. So what, what does she steal? Back in this time, there were two kinds of idols. There were the big idols that you would see in the temples, the Baals and the Molochs and the Ashtaroths. And so they were the massive, big, important idols. But then there were also this class of idols. They were the home version, the DIY idol. You'd watch a YouTube video, you'd make your own little idol, you'd cover it in gold or silver or whatever, and then you'd put it in your home. And it was your own little personal idols, and they had a name. They were called teraphims. And no one's quite sure what a teraphim is, but we know this from the Bible. It's linked to other really bad stuff. So in 2 Kings 23:24, teraphim is, is linked with the word, it's the Hebrew word galulim, which literally means a piece of dung, galulim, <laughs> and shikutsim, which means detestable thing. So it's linked with these other really bad things. So most Bible people say they're really bad little things. The entomology, the way that we get the word, came from a Hittite word, tarpi, which means demon. So it has all these really pretty bad connotations. So what were they for? Why would you have them? No one's sure. Here's the three best guesses. Number one, fertility gods. So it may be that Rachel, she has trouble having kids. It may be that she thought if I grab these and bring them with me, I'll have more babies. So she could have, that could have been her motivation that they are the things that give us kids. Number two, people could have consulted them for advice. So in Ezekiel 21, 21, there's this story of King Nebuchadnezzar coming down and he's on the road. He's got to make a decision. Do I go to Jerusalem to destroy it? Or do I go to Damascus and destroy it? And it says there, he consulted his household gods, his teraphim for advice. Which way do I go? He does other things. He, you know, casts a liver and does this. It's one of the things he does to try to get advice on how to move forward. So it could be that you would go to these things and consult information. So some commentaries say Rachel was trying to get them so her dad couldn't come home and be like, where did my kids go? And get advice to track them down. Maybe she was doing that. The third thing that people think that maybe they're used for is they were actually the title deed to your land. So in the ancient world, everyone believed that there were gods over territory. In fact, I think there's evidence that that is still true. You can read Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. You can read Daniel, that it talks about these principalities and powers that actually have like a area that they have some force and some, some power over. So maybe that's true still to this day. So it could be that they, they had like, okay, but all's over this whole territory, but inside that territory, there are lesser gods. So the God of your little, of Laban's estate were these little teraphim. And it, it enabled him to say, I own this land because I have the little gods that rule this land. So it could be that Rachel was actually grabbing them to get her inheritance back. That she says in verse 14 through 16 was stolen from her. That if she owns these gods, she can come back and actually say, this is my land. Which one is it? I don't know. Nobody does. It could be all the above. Well, was there actually power to them? These little images, were there, was there power to them? So maybe you're like me. I grew up in a church that was hyper superstitious about images. And I can remember a sermon where a guy came in and preached to us, our little church. And he said this, he said, there was this family who had this son and the son was having horrific nightmares, like terrible, terrible nightmares, waking, waking up screaming, demonic, sick, gross, terrifying. And they'd taken him to doctors and tried all this stuff. And they couldn't figure out why does our son keep having these nightmares? And then one night they had this missionary over from Africa and they were showing him their house. And down the hallway, they had this, this little glass case inside the glass case. They had this tribal mask and some other artifacts from the mission field. And the missionary said, Hey, those are demonic that demons are getting access to your home. It's a portal for them. They're coming in and they're the thing that's causing your son to have nightmares. Get rid of this and his nightmares will go away. They got rid of the case, nightmares are gone. So that hits my brain as a 10-year-old and it's in there deep. 
So I always had this superstition of anything that's like that. I'm like, ah, the cross, you know, holy water, throw it on it, do something. All right, so fast forward to Vanuatu. I go to Vanuatu, make really good friends with these students, love them. And as a going away present, they spent a lot of time and they carved me two things, a, uh, uh, a chief staff that supposedly if I take it back to this certain area, I have all the rights of a chief. Uh, I haven't tried that yet. And then the other one was a tribal mask. So I get there and I'm like, ah. well, Dave Corson, the guy at the time that was the principal, he's like, hey, Matt, listen, when you take these back to the States, there will be these people that say to you, oh, look out, those are demonic. Don't keep those, get rid of those. He goes, tell those people to shut up. They don't know what they're talking about. These were made by students that love you. So when people say that to you, ah, don't believe them. I'm like, when people say that to me, I'm already believing it. What are you talking about, right? If you like them so much, I'll give them to you. You can have them, <laughs> right? So which is it? Is it look out or is it Dave, that's stupid? Which is it? Well, the New Testament's very nuanced on it, right? Read 1 Corinthians chapters eight through 10. It's the longest treatment on idols in the Bible. And it begins, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says this, they're nothing. Dave Corson style, nothing. Are you kidding me? Don't worry about it. But then you keep reading it and you get to chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, it says this, hey, listen, behind those idols are demons. And you're like, what? Wait, what? Is it nothing or is it demonic, right? Paul, you're, you're confusing me here. Which is it? Do they have power? Do they have abilities? Should, we, we, should we, we be freaked out by them? Here's the thing. I think if you read that carefully, if you read, in fact, the Bible, big idea, it's this. Yeah, there's no power to them. They work off of borrowed power. Every idol has to borrow its power from you or from me. And when you give yourself over to that idol, it's like power steering. When you start to turn the direction of whatever that idol is about, it gives you amplified power to move that direction really fast. Because every idol had something to it. The Ashtaroth idol was about sex. You worship sex. And people that turn themselves over to sex, man, they get dark in a hurry. It's in the news a lot right now. It gets really gross, really dark. You even read in the New Testament about Herod who gave himself over, stole his brother's wife. He was just a, a sexual deviant. And his own little stepdaughter comes and dances, his niece slash stepdaughter, which is weird in itself, comes and dances in front of him. And he's like, oh, baby, I'll give you anything you want. Give me John the Baptist's head. Sane people don't cut off people's heads. But guess what Herod did? Cut off John the Baptist's head. Why? Because sexual sin takes you dark in a hurry. So it's borrowed power, but always about the humanism and about the human power, and it takes you dark in a hurry, right? Moloch was about success, that if you offer your child on its arms, you'll be successful. And still this day, people offer their families on the arms of success. It still happens today. So it's, it's borrowed power. It's always, it's nothing unless you give it its power, and then it will consume you and take you dark in a hurry. So it's both. It's how do you view it? And so to me, it always, always comes back to Jesus. If I have Jesus as the one that I am like Jacob, holding on to his leg saying, your blessing is what I require. If I'm strapping myself to him, then that protects me from any of this other stuff. I don't have to worry about the darkness. I'm not worried about the dark, I just turn on the light. Guess what happens to darkness when I turn on the light? Gone, that's it, don't worry about it. But if I'm consumed with darkness and into darkness, Oh, it's like power steering, man. It just sucks you in and takes you down. So yes and no. And we're gonna see that it actually comes back to haunt them at the end of this story in chapter 34. So hope that helps. Verse 23, 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, 
be careful <laughs> not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Jacob and Laban overtook Jacob. Now, Lab, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and tricked me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and tambourine and a lyre and a knife in your back? <laughs> I would have partied with you, man. Sure. <laughs> And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father, I can just see him grinning his teeth right here. I want to punch you so bad. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. Is that why he's leaving? No, because Laban was a scoundrel. It's amazing how we can always like reinvent the story. Oh, he left because he really liked home. No, because you were a jerk and you changed his wages 10 times and you kept being a jerk to him. That's why he left. So funny. But why did you steal my gods? <laughs> and Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. There's the truth. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Ooh. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So imagine this. Laban has seven days to stew on what had happened. Seven days to think about what he was going to do and what he was going to say to Jacob. Just seven days to be like, oh, oh, just a boiling teapot. And the night before it's going to happen, when he's just setting up forces, getting everything together, God shows up and says, no. You can't touch him. How frustrating would he be? How frustrating, like it's, ah, oh, I wanted to do you harm, but God showed up and he told me that I can't. So now he has one thing. There's one thing he can kind of take issue with. What's the one thing he can take issue with? He stole my gods. Where are my little gods? You stole my gods. Isn't that a funny thing? If your God can be stolen, get a different God. Why worship a God that can be stolen, right? Don't worship gods that can be stolen, Lamborghini Countach. Don't worship them. <laughs> worship the real God, right? The real God had just showed up to him. It told him, hey, don't do these things. And he's still worried about the fake little gods. It's so funny. Hey, why not worship the God that just showed up to you and said, hey, don't do anything. The, the real God, why not worship him? But he doesn't. He's worried about the one little thing he can fight over. I don't have any of this. I can't do anything to Jacob. I want to do all this stuff to Jacob. I have one thing I can fight over and that's what I'm going to fight over. And so now he just tears apart the entire camp of Jacob, we'll see. Because he's got the one thing and he's going to hold on to it. Don't we do the same? Don't we like grab the one thing that's a disagreement between people or the one thing that we didn't like somebody said, even though we liked a bunch of that they, that they said, but there's the one thing that we grab a hold of and we're like, ah, attack that. Yesterday in a pastor's meeting, I asked this question. I said, we're gonna finish Genesis, probably end of this year. What should we do next? And Dick Worthington said this. He said, we should do the epistles because we need to relearn how to be kind and gentle and civil. That our culture has moved away from these really Jesus biblical things. We don't do it anymore. We're like Laban now. We find the one thing and we just hammer people about it and tear apart their lives and just go for it. We, we need to teach those things. 
I think he's kind of right. Doesn't mean I'll do the epistles, but I think he's right. Like culturally, we're crazy now. I was driving in town yesterday, right after that meeting, I had to go run out somewhere. And I drove, have you seen that big sign? Hand painted, pretty nice. And it just says this, I hate Governor Kate Brown. Have you seen that sign? Yeah, just grieved me. I don't agree with Kate Brown, but my goodness, to hate her? She's an image bearer of God. We hate evil, not people. Like just to have that sign is just grieving to me. Even if you disagree with people, then you disagree with them in a kind, considerate way. You tell the truth, no doubt. But man, to have that sign in my city, I was just like, oh, that's not what we're supposed to do. I love what Jesus does in John 4. It's such a great conversation because it's as diverse as you can get. You've got male versus female back in that culture, which they didn't talk to each other. You didn't have conversations with women. Jesus broke that. So I was talking to this woman, right? They're very different ethnic groups. In fact, their two groups, the Samaritans and the Jews, had 500 years of bad blood between them. They did not like each other. They didn't even travel in the same places. They would just avoid each other at all costs. So you got ethnic problems. You got gender problems. You have religious problems. Jesus is, is a Torah observant rabbi, pure sexually. This woman, yeah, not so much. Like it's every line. And Jesus sparks up this conversation with her and begins to speak to her. And then he says this, hey, call your husband. And what does she say? I don't have a husband. The truth was what? She had five husbands and the man she was now living with, she was fornicating with, right? So how does Jesus respond? You liar. How could you say that? You're an adulterer and a fornicator and you're terrible. No, what does Jesus do? Hey, you've answered well that you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're not living with is not your husband. In that, you've answered well. How kind is that? Truthful and super kind. And what it does is it opens up this conversation and they keep talking and keep talking and keep talking. And he shares with her one of the most incredible truths ever. Hey, listen, he says this, there's coming a time and he actually says to her, and it's actually right now where people are gonna worship, not in this place or that place. It's almost like to me, Jesus saw in her faith. And there's coming a time, no, wait, you've got it. It's right now. It's already arrived. It's arrived for you. It's so kind and so generous and so wonderful. That's how we're supposed to be. I think believers are to be the antidote to this on social media, in the way that we present ourselves, in conversation with people, not Laban, talk show style, but much more Jesus style. Not finding the one thing we disagree with, but actually coming, hey, that's a good answer. I hadn't thought about that. Have you thought about this? Man, I try to do that more and more and more because I can be very Laban-like. Just, oh, I'll get you. And I'm trying to be more Jesus-like because it's better. Laban tears it apart. So here's what he does. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. <laughs> Close call. You want to get a dad to stop? Just say what she said. Oh, okay, all right, I'm out of here. Ooh. Okay, we're done here then. <laughs> That's so awkward. <laughs> but I think to Laban, it was actually unthinkable that someone would sit on his teraphim. No, no one's going to sit on my teraphim. Oh, my goodness, they're powerful gods. No one's going to sit on them. So some people say this, that by Rachel sitting on them, she is showing she doesn't believe that they have any power. That's possible. I think just as possible as this. She was freaked out. And when you're freaked out, you'll do anything. So I think either answer is just as valid. <laughs> what? Jacob just said the stupidest thing ever. I'm going to die if he finds them. I'm sitting on them. That's it. Right? So I think either one is just as true. Here's what I want you to see. And it's been a theme in Genesis. 
Jacob, trickery, verse 20. Rachel steals some gods. Out of that, she then has to lie to her dad. Her dad is super ticked because he's had to come out here. He's angry. We're going to see Jacob just comes unglued in the next verse. All started by one sin, tricking. Here's what Genesis says over and over. Sin begets sin. Sin always comes to your house pregnant. And when you let it in, it gives birth. Think about this. I don't know how you do this. In fact, I don't want you to do this, but I want you to think about it. Think about the next time you sin, keep a running count in your brain about how many more sins come from that one sin because they're always pregnant. Sin begets sin. One trick, one thing that Jacob does sets into motion all this other stuff. Was it worth it? I told you a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago, I had this great study at home where it found this, when you lie, you become stupid. Here's why. When you tell somebody a lie, your brain has to actually start a little function in it that keeps reminding you, you told this person a lie. So next time you tell them or talk to them, remember, you told them that lie. So don't tell them the truth. And it's always spinning that in the back of your mind. Where if you just tell people the truth, guess what your brain does? Just puts it in the file and doesn't have to do anything about it. Oh, he told everybody the truth. But when you lie, your brain has to constantly, and the more lies you have, the more plates you're spinning. So you can just feel like, man, I can't think at all. Well, are you a liar? <laughs> Stop lying. And you don't have all these plates to spin. Your brain will be able to use all its horsepower for what it needs to be doing. Thoughtful, vision, creativity, job. Quit lying. Sin always begets sin. If Jacob would have just said, you know what? God told me to go. I'm gonna tell my father-in-law the truth and we're gonna go. I think this chapter would have been a lot shorter and a lot better, but because he sins, it leads to more sin and it just gets really trashy and really junky. And he's got these gods to deal with in 15 years that have been hanging out with him in his tent around him for 15 years. I think causing a lot of issues and we'll see they're really bad. They come really bad. Man, just tell the truth. Don't sin. It never pays. So doesn't find him, but verse 36, here's what happens. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? Can you just see this in your mind? Like I can just see this happening in my mind. What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. And what have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years, I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your daughters and six years for your flocks. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, there's two ways to actually interpret the fear of Isaac. It could be the God that Isaac fears, or it could be the God that you should fear because of my dad, Isaac. I don't know which one it is. I think it's the latter, that you, you better be afraid of the God of my, da, of my dad. Be, be afraid of him. If he had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Woo! Jacob goes off. That's what I call this. He just goes off. I've been good. You've been a jerk. And God set things straight. That's essentially what Jacob says here. And he 
loses his temper with his father-in-law and is the last conversation he will have with him. How big of a bummer is that? He'll never see him again. You can't send emails. You couldn't write letters. This is it. He's angry, berating his father-in-law. I feel bad for this. I have a bucket list. And my bucket list is to make sure I take care of those kind of conversations. I've written letters to people that I can't get in contact with. I've had dinners with people, meals with people. Like, dude, I blew it. I don't wanna be that kind of person. There's one guy left. It's from my senior in college. And I can't seem to find him. But when I do, I have a letter for him. Already written, ready for him. Because I don't wanna have these kind of things weighing over me. I wanna leave people with an understanding that, hey, I was a jerk, I blew it, I'm sorry. That's not the kind of person that I want to be. You know what the key is? It's super simple. It's James 1.19. Be slow to anger. Has that ever failed anyone here? Has being slow to anger ever failed anyone? Anyone, right? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I should have got angry faster. Man, next time I'm just gonna flip my lid. I'm just gonna totally freak out. Has anyone ever thought that? No, right? Being slow to anger never fails you. Now it's hard. I will admit that it is hard. Do you know why we're supposed to be slow to anger? Because the next verse says this, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You and me get, getting angry doesn't help God. Jacob here leaving with this braiding of, of his Laban isn't helping the kingdom one bit. God's not like, oh, thank you, man. You know, I, I didn't take care of that last night with him. Thanks, Jake, you helped me a lot. No, Jake's, God's like, I dealt with that, bud. I, I'm in control of it. You have to lose your anger. I took care of it. I made it right. You just made it wrong. That's what he does. Well, Matt, how do you control your temper? It's about the toughest thing to control. And I think for me, here's a couple things I do. Number one, I don't do this. I don't give it a new name, right? I don't say, well, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated, right? I'm not angry, I'm just hurt. I don't do that. Don't rename it. Number two, don't do this. Don't play the victim, well, they just get me. No wrong. Anger is always an inside job. Now, some people are better at getting inside of you. No doubt, I'll give you that. But anger is always an inside job. It always starts with me. Don't play the victim. And thirdly, the Bible just says this. 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from that unrighteousness. And you sometimes have to confess your temper over and over. Confessing is the Greek word homo legeo. It just means, homo means same, legeo means language. It's just, you're agreeing with God. God, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have berated my father-in-law. I shouldn't have acted this way. Cleanse me from that. I'm gonna go make restitution. I'm gonna make this right with this person. And I'm gonna keep doing that until I get this thing figured out. Because I don't want all these things hanging over me like a cloud in my past. This is the last conversation Jacob will have with a man he has spent 20 years with, married his two daughters. This is the last conversation, and it's a bummer. It's a lesson for us. So then, verse 43, Laban's turn. Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. That was his real problem. Jacob was right. You want to take everything from me. He should have trusted God because God already told him, go. He didn't. He trusted himself, is in this mess. So he's like, I want all this stuff. And then he says, but what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children of whom they have born? He knows I'm up against God here and I'm gonna lose. Come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it as a pillar. And he said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. 
and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jeger Sahudatha, but Jacob called it Galid because he couldn't pronounce the other one. <laughs> they both just mean this. One's Aramaic, one's Hebrew. They both mean a pile of rocks. Three fancy words. So if you have a pile of rocks, give it one of these names. What is that out there? Galid? Jeger Sadutaha? What in the world is that? It's a pile of rocks. So Laban said, the heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, Yahweh watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? Who actually built it? I love that. Laban's already taking credit for, like, Jacob built it. And Laban's like, see this heap I built? You didn't build it, dude. You've been doing this to me for 20 years. He's still doing it. So awesome. <laughs> this heap is a witness. And the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Interesting. That's grandpa. That's Abraham's dad. The God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac, <clears throat> excuse me. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. <clears throat> there we go. I didn't want to do that to you guys. I love you too much. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. He did not kiss or bless Jacob. Then Laban departed and returned home. You just see sin begetting sin. Jacob gets mad. What does Laban do? He gets mad. <clears throat> it just gets worse and worse and worse. He's frustrated because he can't fight God. But here's what's interesting to me. It's verse 50. I'm about to lose my voice. <clears throat> this is what Laban does. Laban has been bumping into Yahweh. Bump, bump, bump. Jacob right here blows a witness opportunity. But he knows this. If you oppress my daughters or take one of these or take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, God is a witness between you and me. Laban, in this dream, encountered the God that Jacob's gonna encounter in this next chapter that touches hips and dislocates them. <clears throat> and Laban is now, this God has power. This God has power. And so he is now entrusting his daughters, not to Jacob, he's entrusting his daughters to who? God. Father-in-law's? Take a lesson from Laban. You wanna be a good father-in-law? <clears throat> Once your kids are outside of your home, you can't control them anymore. It's too often, father-in-laws try to control their kids from afar, their <clears throat> sons-in-laws or whatever. Laban does a brilliant thing here. I'm trusting God. I'm gonna trust God. I can't control this anymore. You're an adult. I'm trusting you. I love that. <clears throat> so really quickly here, if I can do this, Here's the big story. We're seeing two people and these two people really give us an idea of what the end of your life will look like. You have Laban. He leaves empty. <clears throat> Kisses what's most important to him and leaves without them. Here's why. He lived for himself. He used people to get things instead of using things to bless people. And so in the end, he has nothing. He is a win-at-any-cost guy. He'll change the rules over and over to make sure he wins. <coughs> and he walks away empty. Jacob <coughs> is learning, chapter 31, to trust and obey. He allows Laban to take control. Oh, thank you. <coughs> I can go for another half an hour now. <laughs> no, you're going to keep it now, huh? Yeah. Take it away. 
Man, <clears throat> water. You know what is one of the greatest pleasures in life? When you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like super parched and you grab that glass of water beside you and you just take a drink of it and you fall right back asleep. Isn't it like the greatest pleasure ever? You're like, oh, man, I used like the most simple thing. You're like, that was awesome. Now I'm just like, Ugh. anyways, there you go. I don't even know why I said that, but that's a free one. <laughs> Jacob trusts, begins to trust and obey God. <clears throat> he actually allowed himself to be taken advantage of greatly by Laban, never complains. <clears throat> Not gonna be long. <clears throat> never complains, right? He, he pays for animals that are taken. He, he just, he does it. He does it trusting God the whole time, right? <clears throat> Finally realizes I can't get along with Laban. It's okay, I'm gonna separate from him. And he ends life full. To me, it's exactly what Jesus would say. If you seek to save your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, trusting me, oh, you find life. <clears throat> so, carefully choose my words. <clears throat> Who are you? Are you Laban or Jacob? Do you use things to bless people? Or do you use people to get more stuff and more things? Is it when it only caught at any cost, step on whoever it takes, doesn't matter? Or are you actually willing to allow yourself to be taken advantage of because you're protecting your wife and your kids and a family that's much more important than that. Who are you? Here's the good news. Jacob, 20 years before, was Laban, was he not? And it's been a process of 20 years that's moving him, and in the next chapter, he's gonna become Israel. And Israel, that name literally means prevailed against God. The winner, the prevailer. That's what we get. That's the good news. That when we trust and obey, I don't know what that is, but I like water. Water in the middle of the night. Have I told you that story? <laughs> the good news is, if you're a Jacob, when you learn to trust and obey God, he moves you from that to becoming an Israel or you die full. That's our good news. So Jesus, may we learn the lesson of Laban and Jacob. And we seek to save our lives and make it all about us and demand our way and win at any cost. We lose. But when we, like Jacob, begin to order our life, allowing people that seem to take advantage of us, trusting you in those situations, <clears throat> we win. So may we be those this day <clears throat> that win. And we pray this in your name, amen.